Today's scripture reading will be from 2 Samuel 3, verses 31 to 39. In our Pew Bibles, this is on page 257. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered, as one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, no, it's not a typo. It is 60 some odd verses this morning. But we won't read, I won't read all of them. Uh, I'll be doing a lot of summarizing, hoping that you will read all of that for yourselves. Um, but within these two chapters, they, they show us um, how much of a toll it takes on people in power for them to remain in power. And so whether it's a, a kingdom regime or the governments we have today, people go to very great lengths to stay in power, and we know this very well in our mostly two-party system of government here in the United States. You, you and I live through this stuff with all the mudslinging that happens and all the name-calling and all the blaming and pointing of fingers of why things are wrong. Lots of conflict. And changes in government are, are rarely peaceful. They are rarely smooth. It's often very messy. It's very often costly, bloody. And whether we look at our own revolution, uh, war, or, or the civil war, or if you look at any other regime change globally, it's, it's bloody. It, it costs lives for these changes to happen. And so it's no different for David, who is God's chosen king, and so you, we read here in chapters 2 and 3 how, how it's the same. We deal with the same thing. And, and so God has chosen King David to be the king over Israel, but it's very bloody. It's very messy. And you'd think that since God ordained this, that it would, it would go rather smoothly, but, but it doesn't. So we often hear this thing from people where... They say, like, you know, if God is really real, then why is the world the way that it is? Like All the crime and the murder and the suffering and the pain, all these different things that we experience in our world, why, why do we experience all this negativity? And what I want to point out to you this morning is that we are in the middle of this regime change. 
We're in the middle of it. Last week brought up how David is anointed king of Judah in chapter 2, but he doesn't get anointed king until chapter 5. That there's all this conflict. He's not anointed king of Israel until chapter 5. So between chapters 2 and 5, there's, there's a lot of conflict. Again, very bloody, very messy, and seemingly godless. And the change that we are having right now is that the kingdom of God is present with us, and we know that Jesus Christ is king, but then there's this not yet aspect to it in where we are currently in those chapters 2 to 5 where Satan is still ruling the world. And so there are many Bible verses that address this. I'm just going to share with you two of them. First one, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here's the second one, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so here we are, looking at chapter 2 and 3 of 2 Samuel. And we are currently living in this sort of an era where we know there is an anointed king, but there is someone that's still kind of ruling. And we're going to look at 2 Samuel, and we're going to see Abner, a type of antichrist, is battling against God's chosen king, David. And we'll see this bloody, messy battle between Abner, the commander of King Saul's army, and Joab, the captain of David's army. And so let's start in verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Geography tells us a lot. Geography tells us where these guys were going, where they were coming from. And so Abner and the, a group of his men went from Maenea to Gibeon. We know from last week that Maenaeum is east of the Jordan River because the Philistines had occupied most of Israel. All the important routes, all the important trade routes, all the important cities. So they go to Maenaeum so that Abner does this kind of a farce of crowning Ishbosheth, the prince of Saul to be king of Israel. And so we know that this was a meaningless coronation because that city doesn't have any significance. Abner went from this insignificant city, Mahanaim, to Gibeon. And Gibeon is southwest of Mahanaim. It's on the other side of the Jordan River. It's on the west side of the Jordan River. And what this tells us is Abner was the one looking for trouble. That Abner is the aggressor who is going from Mahanaim to Gibeon, and he's looking to attack. Verse 13, And Joab the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth and the son of Saul and twelve of the servants of David. And in verse 15, this first battle starts out as this 12 on 12, and, and, and they kill each other. They're, they're all dead. So this fight then escalates into having everyone involved in it. Verse 16, and each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gilboa. You can read the rest yourself down to verse 18. Abner's army is beaten. And Abner starts to run away. He starts to retreat. 
But Asahel, who in verse 18 is described as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, he pursues Abner, and Asahel is Joab's brother. And this is important to keep in mind. Verses 19 through 23, which you can read for yourself, Asahel is not going to stop pursuing Abner. He just keeps going after him. He wants to take him out. He wants to kill him. And so Asahel is being tempted by Abner, and Abner is yelling out to him, hey, why we, we have all these people killed already, and they have all these spoils. Just, just take their stuff. You, you don't have to come after me. There's like all these spoils, and you can get rich off of this stuff. Just take their stuff. They've already fallen. Asahel does not care. He's like, I don't care about these spoils. I want your head. I want to kill you. And so he keeps going after this guy. And he's like just thinking, you know, those spoils are worth nothing compared to you. And Abner then warns Asahel. And he says, I don't want to kill you. So, so stop pursuing after me. But Asahel keeps going. Finally, Asahel, Mr. Gazelle, catches up to Abner. And then Abner kills him. Abner kills him with the butt of his spear, striking him in the stomach, coming out of his back. As the Bible says, I'm not embellishing or anything. And some kind of wonder, like, how is that possible that the end of a butt of a spear can pierce through someone's stomach and go through the back? Well, back then, you kind of need a place to put your spear when you're back at camp, right? They don't always lean it on something. So they put like this prong at the end of the spear so you can just pop it on the the ground and then they can go away and go to sleep and then whenever they need it they just pop it back up so it's not like that blunt end anyway I thought some military nerds might be interested in that then we get into verses 24 through 26 and when we get to verse 26 Abner calls for a truce with Job he says okay enough people have died let's let's call a truce they, they agree, and then verses 27 through 31, Abner retreats back to Mahanaim, and it's reported to us, verse 31, that he has lost 360 soldiers. Joab has lost 20. So obviously, Joab defeated Abner convincingly. There's, there's no doubt about it, but the biggest loss, he lost his brother, Asahel. So it doesn't matter if they won the battle. It doesn't matter that they only lost 20 and they lost 360. He lost his brother. And then we get to verse 32 of chapter 2. And from 32 all the way down through verse 10 in chapter 3, that by the time we read through chapter 3 and verse 10, we read of Abner looking to seize power. So that first section that we just talked about, Abner is the aggressor. He's looking to beat Judah so that he can combine this kingdom and put Ishbosheth as this figurehead, even though he's the one really pulling the strings and he's the one in power and Ishbosheth is just a puppet. And so he tries to do this by himself. This doesn't work. So now what does he have to do to be in power? And this is what we're getting to here. He takes one of Saul's concubines, Rizpah, and he takes her for his own. He sleeps with her. And so Ishbosheth, Saul's son, the falsely crowned king of Israel, calls Abner out on this because if this is done, this is essentially telling the king if you take the king's concubine, you are claiming to be king. 
So he is, Abner is saying like, I'm king. I'm going to take Rizpah as my own concubine. And essentially he's telling everybody, I'm king. While Abner is claiming this and trying to do this power grab, Ishbosheth says, what are you doing? And he calls him out on this. Well, this ticks Abner off because Abner knows I'm the one in power. I'm the one that crowned you. Well, who are you to call me out on these things? Like, you're, you're just a puppet. And so Abner thought, this guy's not going to do anything. I can take any concubine I want. And Ishbosheth is just supposed to be this, this figurehead, this, this symbol of a king, but he's powerless. But then he gets called out on this. And so Abner is thinking, that didn't work either. I tried to be the aggressor, and I, and I initiated a war, and I lost. I'm trying to take power from this king, and he calls me out on it, and I can't do that. So now what am I going to do? How am I going to maneuver into being into power? And so he knows that David is Israel's king. And we know this because back in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, he admits this, right? He, he tells Ishbosheth that, you know, I'm no longer going to help you be king. I'm going to help David because he's supposed to be king anyway. He quotes this about David being king. Abner's just really, really angry. He lost this battle against Joab outside of the kingdom. And then now he's trying to do stuff inside of the kingdom and he loses this power from this concubine snatching from Ishbosheth. And so nothing is going right for him. And so he's conniving and he's trying to figure out, well, how am I going to get this power? So verses 11 through 21, that by the time we read through to verse 21, Abner's then trying this third tactic, right? That first tactic didn't work of him being the aggressor to take over Judah, that failed. The second tactic of grabbing power from Ishbosheth that fails. So now there's this third tactic, and he's going to try his hand at diplomacy. He knows that Israel's chosen king is David. He's going to appeal to David. And so he goes to talk to the house of Benjamin to convince them that David is king. He does. And he, then he goes to Hebron to talk with David to tell him that he will be the one to bring the northern tribes to recognize David as king. Well, there's a problem. Because Job's brother is a captain of David's army. And Abner killed Asahel. And do you think a brother is going to let go of that so easily? In verses 22 through 39, David has this feast for Abner. There was this huge party. They reached this peace accord. They reached this agreement with each other. And Joab wasn't there because Joab and his army, his guys, were off doing a raid. And so when Abner was visiting Hebron, uh, he wasn't there. And I think Abner knew that. He was probably trying to figure out, okay, when is this guy going to be out? That's when I'm going to talk to David. And so when he gets to Hebron, they have this big feast. They leave. Then Job shows up with his army. He hears about what's going on, and he's really angry. He can't believe David has done this. He lays into David. He's angry because Abner killed his brother. 
And Joab tells David that Abner, verse 25, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. So then Joab, without David's knowledge, sends messengers to bring Abner back and probably lying about it. Probably using David's name and saying like, hey, King David uh, would like you to come back. He, he's not done partying with you. He, he wants to throw a feast. Or he's just making up some sort of an excuse like, oh, you know, you guys uh, actually have some more to talk about, so why don't you come back? Now, there's no way he comes back if he knows it's Joab's messenger that sent him to come back. And so it has to be kind of some sort of like false pretense to bring him back because he knows that Joab wants to kill him. Now, Abner doesn't suspect any of this because you can read in verses 21, 22, and 23 this phrase. In verse 21, he went in peace. Verse 22, he had gone in peace. Verse 23, he has gone in peace. In his mind, everything's fine. In his mind, him and David are good. We're peaceful. Everything's good between us. It's mentioned three times that Abner left David in peace. So then when Abner gets to Hebron, Joab takes him aside, does the same thing, that he, how he killed his brother. He strikes him in the stomach. Abner dies. So essentially, Joab assassinates Abner, murders him. First degree murder. Right? He, he knew what he was going to do. He, he knew his motives. First degree murder. Well, this creates a problem for David. It's a big problem. Because now it looks like David orders this assassination. This guy tries to come in peace, tries to negotiate some diplomacy stuff, and he has his own army. He's commander of Saul's army, and now he's dead. And so this is a big problem, because how is David going to smooth all of this over with the north. How is this going to, how is he going to explain himself out of this? So what does David do? He has to get the truth out. He has to get it out before word spreads that Abner's dead. And so Joab, Abishai, his brother, and, and the men that he sent were messengers. They all knew the truth, but what about everybody else? And so David has to get ahead of this, and, and he makes it clear to everyone what has happened, and he goes out and publicly curses Joab and, and his whole household, and he tells people to mourn, and he does this public spectacle to try to make it so it seems that he didn't do it, and it, and it works. People think David's great. And here we have Joab who killed Abner because Abner killed his brother Asahel. And so this was revenge, which was something very different to how Asahel had died because they had died in war. And in that war, Abner killed him in self-defense. And he was running, he was retreating, and he told Asahel, stop pursuing me. I don't want to kill you. And it keeps going. And he didn't want to kill him. But Asahel keeps going. And then he's killed in battle from Abner defending himself while retreating. And you compare that killing to this assassination where he lies to him and lures him back. And he premeditated murder, first degree murder. It's, it's a totally different thing of how he got killed. Now, 
Why does the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, have all this negative stuff in it? You ever wondered that? I've heard people that tell me, like, I like the Bible. I like the New Testament, the Old Testament. I, I'm not. It's too much killing. It's too violent. It's too all this stuff. Like, why all the violence? Why all the killing? Why all the power grabbing and taking advantage of women and maliciousness, selfishness, conspiracy, all these things? Why this record of what Abner did and what Joab did? Why, why isn't this more positive? Because, you know, we're Christians. Like we, we, we need to be positive people. We have positive vibes. Why is all of this recorded for us to show us such failures? And this is really important. Because it's the truth. That's what it is. It's the truth. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat the truth. The Bible isn't afraid of presenting us the truth. It, it's not sterilized at all. It's not censored to present our heroes in their best light. And it's so unlike our world today. We, we want to change things. We want to sterilize things. We want to censor things. And we want to present a certain narrative, whether that's in our own personal lives and how we present ourselves in social media because you only show the good stuff, right? Your vacation in Hawaii or whatever, but you don't show like your fight with your spouse at home. Like you don't show those things. You, you show like, oh, look what I'm eating. Like, isn't this wonderful? Look at this beautiful thing. But you don't show the night where you just make mac and cheese because you're lazy and you know, you don't do that stuff. But our world does that too. Our world just shows like the stuff that it wants to show. We are so for justice, and we march to this, and we don't, but they don't show you the stuff that they're bad. Like, you stole something. You cheated on your taxes. You did whatever. You don't show that stuff. You just show, like, yeah, we're marching for justice. We're doing this. We're doing that. But you're not presenting the whole truth. You don't present the truth. You present what you want to present, so unlike the Bible. The Bible is just, here's the truth. We're not hiding anything. The heroes of our faith, this is how messed up they are. This is really them. And we're given the story as is. It is not sterilized. It is not covering up anything. It is just true. And our world is not sterile at all. We just present it that way. Why present it other than the truth? Because our world is power hungry. And we have to tell our side of the story to convince people to side with us. Whatever sides you're on, they all do it. And they're all warmongering. They're all full of hatred. They're all malicious. They're all revengeful. That's our world. And we are in a world that has people just like Abner. And it's full of people just like Joab, much of it is because the kingdom is heading toward being ruled by its God-appointed king, Jesus. That's why. We're in this chapter 2 to chapter 5, and there's a constant battle because there is an anointed king, rightful king, but we're ruled by this other one that is just, this shift is making him violent and making things bloody because we're prideful and we're selfish 
and we want to take advantage of those who are weaker than we are. But even Abner knows what's inevitable. Abner knows this. 2 Samuel chapter 3, starting in verse 9. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. He knows this. He even tells them. And then you go down to verse 18, it's confirmed again. Now then bring it about for the Lord has promised David saying, by the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Now, what does this tell us? That even in all of this horrible, terrible, brutal stuff that happens in our world, there is a God that has established. There is a God that has instituted in that he has already appointed his chosen king and given him a kingdom to deliver to us and save his people, just like he did for David. We have Jesus, and there's this foreshadowing, there's this picture of David for God to show us the same picture in real time in history. I've done this with David. And so do you see this picture that God has drawn in David, his chosen king, and for us in Jesus, the real ultimate chosen king? And this picture of David is this precursor of a much bigger picture that we are living currently right now in Jesus. And this is a picture of the order that God brings to our world through the son of David, historical, to Jesus. What is happening now and is going to happen in the future. And so this is much more than just David. This is a Davidic line of kings all the way through to Jesus. And so David is is celebrating his Messiah, knowing that I'm not the Messiah. The Messiah comes through me, but I'm not the Messiah. And so he writes this psalm in Psalm 110, verse 1. He says, the Lord, if you look up the Hebrew there, it's Yehovah. So it's in reference to God the Father. The Lord, Yehovah, says to my Lord, and that Lord is Adonai in Hebrew. And that is in reference to the Messiah, whom we know as Jesus, and sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David recognizes this. The Messiah is coming through me as a Davidic line, not that I'm special or anything, but God anointed me. And so the world is going to arrive at this kingdom when all of Messiah's enemies will be defeated. But in David's day, it's pretty grim. Things are not looking good. Just like in our day. Right? Just like in our day. We don't experience this time of victory, do we? It's pretty dark. It's pretty grim with Satan ruling. It is full of hate. It is full of disorder and chaos, confusion. But in the middle of all of this chaos, God has already anointed the king. Jesus. And he already has his kingdom. And it's only a matter of time until we move in that direction. We're in this chapter 2 to chapter 5 section. And Jesus has already been chosen king. He's already had a chapter 5. 
And then he will bring stability, order, justice. You know, even when we're disappointed in his people, we looked at Abner, we looked at Joab, both God-fearing people. You know, Abner was commander in Saul's army. He's a Jew. He follows the way of God, and, and Joab is following David. And so we looked at those characters and we see their faults. But let's look a little more closely at David. Like we, we already know David has a lot of faults, right? We talked about this last week. I don't know if you've picked up on this fault in chapter 3. Let, let's take a look at it, starting in verse 1 through 2. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. So we're, we're reading here, David grew stronger and stronger. Saul grows weaker and weaker. We're told that these sons are born to David. If you look all the way through verse 5, he has all these sons, which is a sign of strength, a sign of power, because he is establishing his kingly lineage. He is establishing his successors. So verses 2 through 5 record for us all these sons, but they're from six different wives, which is four more than when he first arrived at Hebron. And now David is not following God's word. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, because this is applied to kings. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So David is moving in the wrong direction. David is not living according to Deuteronomy 17, 17. David is assembling for himself a harem. And he's going against God's word and how the king is to live. And what David is doing is simply unholy. Unholy in that he's just living like any other king in any other kingdom around him. He's living like everybody else. He's common. He's letting the culture of kings influence his own life. He's letting the cultural norm of the time influence him. And so kings all over had harems. I'm going to have a harem. Even though Deuteronomy 17.17 17 says that he should not do that. But kings have multiple wives. But Israel's king is to be holy. He is to be uncommon. Same as us. We are called to be holy. We do not go the way of the culture. We do not go the way of the world. We are holy people. And so the kings of the world, they made alliances with other kings this way by taking on more wives because they would take the wives of noble blood or of royal blood from another kingdom so that they wouldn't war with each other and they would kind of keep their kingdom safe. And so they would do this all the time. They would exchange like a sister or a niece or a cousin or whatever. And they would do this so that oh, let's keep the peace. Like you can't attack because like your sister's my wife, right? And so what we have here in verses 1 through 5 is a clear picture of David departing from God's word. The very same thing that's happening in our world today. We do the same thing. We have the world's acceptable behaviors, acceptable morality, 
And it's very common in the world. It's very well accepted in the world. But then we also have what God requires of us in his word, which is uncommon, which is holy. And so many have chosen the ways of verses 1 through 5, the way of the culture, rather than following God's commandments and being holy. And many wonder how David, you know, the chosen king, how can the chosen king do this? I mean, he's God's chosen king. Shouldn't he be different already? And if anyone is to follow God's commandments, shouldn't it be him? It would be the king, right? But you see, we're all susceptible to this blindness that if God's chosen king is, aren't we? Right? Aren't we? And there are so many people that go the way of the world that don't follow God's word, even though they claim to be Christians. Many in our church, even. Many who choose the way of the culture over the way of God. And a common one in our culture is breaking the fourth commandment, which I myself am guilty of as well. Let me remind you of the fourth commandment. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But how many of us do common things that our culture just accepts on a Sabbath day? We do this all the time. I'm guilty of this. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I don't know the last time I took a Sabbath be honest with you. I'm just as guilty as many of you in the Bay Area who work your tails off to try to make a living here and just to pay rent. I'm just like like you guys. I've had to take multiple jobs just to make ends meet. I'm just like any of you. We live a common cultured life. We live unholy lives. I mean, how many of us treat it just like any other day? Not holy. Not set aside for God. And maybe we set a few hours for church, but the rest of the day, not so much. You're, you're back doing what you're doing. And this is just one example of many where we have this blind spot to how we don't follow God. We just let the culture dictate. And in the first part of 2 Samuel 3, we have this example of David with his multiple wives. And then in the latter part of 2 Samuel 3, we have something that's also unholy. He's withholding justice. You first read 2 Samuel 3 and you're like, oh, look at how sad David is. And he's making people mourn for Abner. And he's making everybody, he, he, he's cursing Joab and his household. He publicly shames them and he forces him and his army to mourn for Abner. But here's the thing. That wasn't justice. That's just 
a political move to appease people, to make it look like he didn't do it. But it's not justice. Asahel was killed in war where Abner killed Asahel while he was retreating in self-defense. That is very different from what Joab did. Joab did first-degree murder. Planned it all out, assassinated him. What is justice according to Old Testament? Job should be executed. That capital punishment. That's the law for Old Testament law. He should be executed. Now why didn't David give justice? Why does he do all this other stuff for Abner? Why isn't justice served for Abner? Just like all of us. Because maybe uh, Joab's his nephew. How are you going to explain that to your aunt? How are you going to explain that to your uncle? How are you going to explain that to your cousin? How are you going to explain this? You killed your nephew? You killed your nephew because that guy killed his brother? Like, how, how is that? How'd you do that? Maybe because then he'd lose one of his key military leaders in his army, and he's afraid that, you know what, if, if I execute Joab, I lose one of my key military leaders, and I also lose his soldiers. Maybe it's that. A lot of show, though. A lot of show. A lot of mourning, a lot of grief for Abner. Problem, no justice. Same thing we deal with our world too. We have all this stuff we complain about and we bring all this stuff up and we, we, we do all these things, but no justice. Like justice not served. Complain about things and do things and protest and vote and do all these things, still no justice. We all have blind spots, don't we? A ton of blind spots all around us. And if one of God's greatest servants, David, who has so many faults about him, surely you and I do too. Right? We're all fallible. We all have issues. Now I think this goes for many of us, that on the whole, there's a lot that is good about you more so than bad, that I'm convinced of it, that all of us, if, if we just had scales, the good outweighs the bad in us. We're good people. But we can't fool ourselves because it's not about scales, about you're more good than bad. Because the bad about us is really bad. It causes us to be blind to do things that are common, to do things that are accepted in the world and the culture, and to live unholy lives that we're told to live by God as his children. It makes us kind of do all the show of showing like that we're sorry and we're mourning and we're grieving and we're doing all this stuff, but justice isn't served. We, we don't take it to the final point. So what does all of this tell us? That you and I aren't God. We're not God. 
neither is someone so great as King David, that there is really only one king, and there is really only one that is good, Jesus, and that there is no bad in Jesus, that it is all good. He is sinless. So there is no other person, there is no one, there is no thing worthy of our worship. That everything else, everything else is a false idol. That it will eventually disappoint. Especially the world. Especially the culture. How do I know? Because it always changes. Always. It's never the same. It always changes. The values always change. It's like this moving target. You don't know what it is. The thing with God, He doesn't change. You know. You know what it is going to be. So it's only Jesus who is worthy of our worship. Only Jesus who does not disappoint. And so we are to only look to Jesus. And it's obvious we don't look up to the Abners of the world. It's obvious we don't look to the Joabs. And the thing is, is that sometimes it's harder for us to see because we're looking up to people like David. But he's still fallible. Extremely fallible. You can point out like every violation of the commandments in David. He's a messed up guy. We're only to look to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would gift us with a discernment to live holy lives, that we wouldn't be common and just kind of go with the world's currents. Knowing that your word is perfect, that what you have for us is perfect, while everything else changes around us, you don't. You remain constant. And so God, help us to see that. And God, help us to not just do things for show, that, that we are to live, say, do as you command. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your communion elements, let's uh, take that together. And uh, just as a reminder, we have people available to pray with us during this time if, if you need prayer. Mike is in the left front pew here, and Susanna in the right front pew. They, they'd be honored to pray with you. And as we take these elements, this wafer symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us the only perfect king the perfect sacrifice for us to take on our sins let's take this together in his name the fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us We take this in Jesus' name in remembrance of him. Lord Jesus, these simple elements yet so meaningful that you've instructed us to take until your return. And so we wait, await that Second Samuel chapter 5 moment. 
knowing that we, we are living in this not yet aspect where the ruler of this world is causing complete chaos just like Abner did before King David's reign. Help us to not be discouraged by it. Help us to be faithful, holy people. In Jesus' name, amen.